0: The Profile. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Where faith comes to life. Good afternoon. I'm Martin Eden, Premier's political editor. My guest this afternoon is David Alton, Baron Alton of Liverpool. David was born in London in 1951, son of an English father and an Irish mother which gives him dual citizenship. He began his career as a teacher and became involved in politics when in 1972 he became Britain's youngest city councillor while still a student. He was elected to Parliament in 1979 and eventually became the Liberal Party's chief whip in the House of Commons. He resigned this role to campaign for his private member's bill, which sought to stop late abortions. When the Liberals merged with the SDP in 1988, he became a Liberal Democrat MP, but had an uneasy relationship with some of his fellow MPs over the issue of abortion. He stood down as an MP in 1997 and was made a life peer in John Major's dissolution honours. In the same year, he was appointed professor of citizenship at Liverpool John Moores University, where he established the Foundation for Citizenship, and the Roscoe Lectures. Good afternoon, David. Good afternoon, Martin. Did you have a happy childhood, David?
1: I think it's, it would be wrong to say it was, it was idyllic. Uh, I, I was born in a in a poor home. We didn't have a inside. Uh, bath or anything like that it was it was rough tough it was in the east end of london and so materially not prosperous but we were rehoused onto outside of london as i grew up and uh, there were there were moments in my childhood which i look back at and they they were difficult they were stressful Um, but i was blessed in having two wonderful parents and i think in the end despite whatever hurdles you, you have placed in front of you, whatever difficulties there are in your life, that's probably the greatest thing to get you through and I had a wonderful father, he was a demobbed desert rat, he fought at El Alamein and uh, Monte Cassino, he was one of five brothers, one had died in the RAF, uh, but they'd all seen action and that also gave him I think some difficult memories as well from that, that period. Um, My mother, as you you said, was an immigrant from the west of Ireland. Her first language was Irish, not English, but both of them left school at, what, 14 years of age. Uh, But my father, uh, throughout the whole of my childhood, one of the things he would always do would be to take me on the back of his bicycle to the public lending library. And there were always books at home. And he learnt a love of classical music when he was uh, in the Italian campaign during the war. So one thing that he would acquire every week would be a long playing uh, record uh, of, of Italian tenors, so whether it was Gili or Caruso or Mario Lanza, uh, there would always be music playing in, in, in our home. Um, so it was. It wasn't always easy. I had an uncle who took his own life. Uh, he'd come back from the war very depressed. He'd lost his hearing. Um, there were moments later on when I was at school where there would be some bullying and things like that that you look back at and they weren't very pleasant experiences and uh, and other things too but um, generally speaking I think I was pretty fortunate in having just two wonderful loving parents.
0: So when did you become a Christian and what drew you to the Roman Catholic Church?
1: Well, my mother had me baptised, so I got my faith with my mother's breast milk, basically. Uh, I was baptised in the East End of London, and many years later, when I went back to that neighbourhood to do a school prize giving, they took me into the church afterwards and said, would I be interested in seeing the church? I said, yes, I would. So we, they took me there, and uh, I saw the baptismal register, and I said, well, whatever happened to Father Andrew? And this very elderly priest said, that is me. <laughs> he, he was the man who, 40 years earlier, had, had baptised me, and had all his ministers. Of being in the East End over those years, um, so I grew up with with faith. For my my father, rather blamed God for some of the terrible things he'd witnessed as a young man during the war, uh, but he never disbelieved in God and we'd often argue about uh, what was God made and what was man made. Our former chief rabbi Jonathan Sachs puts it very memorably when he says, don't ask where was God at Alpswich, ask where was man. Uh, and I think we need to ask ourselves that question all the time. So, it, Our household was a place where you could have uh, arguments about everything from faith to, to politics and, and life generally. But So I started my Christian journey uh, when I was a child, but. Um, when I got into grammar school, we had a chapel and a chaplain, and uh, I would come in early in the mornings and serve mass. So I, I attended mass on a on a daily basis, really. But uh, having gone up to Liverpool as a student, uh, I studied theology and history. Um, so I was still very attracted to learning more about Christianity. But I would I would say that there were lots of cul-de-sacs and lots of diversions d- during that period. And I think the Jewish rabbi who says that the man who thinks he's finished is finished (laughs) gets it right and uh, your journey is never finished and I delight constantly in trying to learn more but mine's a sort of stumbling journey I mean someone once said to me do you are you a born again Christian and I said well I'm a failed again Christian but I stick at it and uh, I think that sums up my faith fairly well. I understand that sentiment very well.
0: David you joined the Liberal Party and you were elected to Liverpool City Council at the tender age of 21. You then went on and became an MP when you were 28. What was driving you to be so politically active at that early age?
1: Well, I would have been crazy to look for a political career in a party that had just six members of parliament, led by Joe Grimmond uh, in those days. Um, There was no career prospect. It wasn't something that I I was seeking. was training to teach and that's what I did for seven years. But I ended up living in a neighbourhood where half the homes had no inside sanitation or running hot water or bathrooms, the very things I'd experienced as a child. Uh, There was great poverty and deprivation there and the answer to this in the minds of the local city council was to demolish people's homes but people didn't want their communities demolished and so i started a local campaign against that uh, which led to my standing for the local council as a protest really Uh, and i was pretty surprised that uh, people would trust a 21 year old student (laughs) who who looked as though he was a 21 year old student as well um, as as their local councillor but uh, people did elect me and i went on to become the deputy leader of the council and its housing chairman and one of the things I was able to do was to stop the demolition programs and start the country's biggest housing renewal program. So when you go up to Liverpool these days and it's a wonderful city, many of the areas of Georgian and Victorian housing that people now say isn't it wonderful, um, that would have all been demolished if it hadn't been for those decisions that I was able to help take in, in the 1970s i think it was on the back of that really that when a parliamentary by-election then took place in that neighborhood um but despite the fact my uh, party was running at what i think eight percent in the opinion polls its then former leader jeremy Thorpe was on a conspiracy to murder charge uh, the liblab pact had not been a howling success from a political point of view it wasn't the most auspicious moment to be fighting a by-election but uh, i And indeed, the night before voting took place, the government collapsed in a vote of no confidence. So a general election was called on the Wednesday night, and I was elected on the Thursday. So it wasn't just I became the youngest member of Parliament, I became the shortest-lived-ever MP. (laughs) I was there for two and a half days and made my maiden speech within two hours of arriving. I did so just in case I never got re-elected and and would be a sort of after-dinner joke for the rest of my life. But uh, that's what set me on my way. But I was still, even then, uh, just a member of a political party of only 11 MPs. So when you say that I held various portfolios and this, that and the other, of course I did because there was no one else to do many of those things, it wasn't a sign of particular political greatness. Um, But it was a a steep learning curve. I mean, When you get thrown into committees and you're a minority of one on those committees and you don't even know where you've got to sit and you have a bill in front of you, massive bill changing the law on something like telecommunications and you're suddenly overnight the official spokesman. You have to learn fast in that situation.
0: So, David, how has your Christian faith influenced the way you do politics
1: well again i, I'm, I wouldn't like to hold myself up as some sort of alabaster saint because i 'm not and you know i, I I was a street fighter who had to fight his way at, in community politics in a rough, tough environment. Liverpool was a, a tough place to, to do politics, um, and quite physically tough as well. I mean, over the years I had a brick in my face, I had, and on another occasion uh, the police had to come into a council chamber to pull off a, a protester who had his hands around my neck at, at one point, and, it, and we had court battles and all sorts of things, so that was it was tricky. but. As I proceeded, I began to realise that just being confrontational or combative was not, not going to be the answer to this. And I started, I hope, influenced by my faith to look for the goodness rather than just what was bad, to look for goodness in other people and in people from other political traditions. And because we never had a, a majority on the City Council in those days, um, I needed to, to make anything happen, I needed to be able to reach out to others. And I hope my, my Christian faith helped me to do that. I hope it also encouraged me not to be, uh, put my finger in the wind to find which way the wind was blowing before I would take a position on something. In the last letter that John Wesley wrote, it, it was to William Wilberforce, he told him to stand against slavery. But he told him also to be an athanasius contra mundum, be an athanasius against the world. And I think that's a, the best advice I could give to anybody going into politics, whether they're Christians or not, but not to just conform, not to simply just go along with whatever the passing fad may be, but to, to look at it in the face and say, is this not left or right? Is it right or wrong? That's, a, for me, you know, the, the starting point I would have when I look at political issues. And not necessarily, is it just going to make you popular? People often said to me, but David, if only you'd support things like capital punishment, then we'd vote for you, and I would say, well, I'm pro-life, you know, I don't, I don't actually think you're going to stop burglaries, break-ins, muggings, and then very high levels of crime as a result of having capital punishment, and sometimes you're going to execute people who who weren't guilty. How can you live with that if you do that? So so you'd have to think about issues very carefully, therefore, from a Christian point of view, and so on an issue like the right to life of an unborn child, I, would even as a 17-year-old, had Uh, collected petitions at school against the original Abortion Act. There have now been 8 million abortions in Britain. Um, I think that's a law of unintended consequences. I don't believe that those who voted for that legislation all those years ago expected it would work out like this. And I I think if Christians had been a bit clearer at the time uh, about why they opposed it and because of what they thought it might lead to, I think we might have saved many lives in, in the course of that. But saying those things doesn't exactly make you popular. Is your opposition to abortion absolute or are
0: there exceptional circumstances where you might think it acceptable?
1: Well of course if a woman's life is at risk there are two lives then in the balance and in those circumstances of course it's licit, it's it's proper to consider whether a termination should then occur but I can't see other reasons why there should be. Uh, an ending of a, of a new life. I mean, Once life has begun, then it's our duty, surely, to protect that life. We now eliminate, for instance, 90% of all babies who have Down syndrome, uh, as though we've got, found, a, as it were, a cure for Down syndrome. The only cure is we take the life of a Down syndrome child. 98% of all abortions that occur in the UK are done under the Social Clause. Some people have now had as many as eight legal abortions. We've even had gender abortions where abortions take place purely because it's a little girl, the gender of the child. How can that be right? And so can everything be reduced merely to a matter of choice? I don't think so. Um, But when you challenge these things, and sometimes, (laughs) as I say, it doesn't make you very popular, but it's nevertheless, we we ought to keep a debate going about this and keep people's minds open. And again, there's there's an old saying that if you save a single life, you can save the world. I know of examples of people who have changed their minds simply because they 've heard the arguments about the right to life itself and they 've been blessed by wonderful children as a consequence and I think we've we 've always got to put that point of view, but we 've got to do it surely not in a way that condemns people or judges people and none of us are in a position to do that we have to do it by being affirmative of a woman and her child. Uh, we have to be do it because we believe. Medics, doctors, and nurses are called to be healers, uh, defenders of life, not destroyers of life. So it's the way we position the arguments, I think, that matters.
0: What made you stand down from Parliament in 1979 and uh, 1997?
1: Well, I didn't exactly stand down because uh, I I was like a prisoner who got out of the penitentiary kicking off the dust from my shoes and I was suddenly given a life sentence for bad behaviour. So I stood down from the House of Commons, uh, but obviously remained in in Parliament. But but in the Lords, I sit as an independent crossbencher. And the reason why I'm an independent is because my party, which had then become the Lib Dems in, in the early 1990s, decided to make abortion a party policy rather than a conscience question which is what it had been up until then and I said I'd posed that change uh, ironically on the day that the party decided to make abortion a party policy. In the morning, they'd passed a resolution on animal welfare that included protection for goldfish being sold in amusement arcades and fun fairs. And I said uh, on the news that night, a party that in the morning says that it's gonna protect goldfish, but in the afternoon tells me that I can't have a conscience position on a subject like abortion, defending the right to life of an unborn child, has both lost my intellectual support but my emotional support as well. And I was sad about it because I'd never joined any other party and after all I'd joined the old Liberal Party which of course no longer exists but I joined that when I was a teenager so um, it had been in my DNA and my lifeblood but if the old Liberal Party believed passionately in conscience and I thought that this it had morphed into something else. It had become political correctness rather than political courage. Uh, it had become liberal intolerance rather than respect and tolerance for diversity and different points of view. Mm. And I think that's a, a, a sadness for me that but, but, but that has engulfed a, a, a party that has a fine and honourable political tradition. Were you surprised when John Major put you in for a
0: peerage in uh, that year?
1: I was very surprised. Uh, my youngest... One of my youngest children at the time said to me, Dad, does that mean we get a castle? And I had to explain, no, it meant I got a lot of headaches <laughs> <laughs> that, I, that I thought I was going to escape from. But I'd just been, because I'd announced that I was standing down from the Commons, I'd just been appointed by one of the universities in Liverpool uh, as a professor there, but also set up a foundation for them, a foundation of citizenship. And I ran a public lecture series over the following nearly 20 years, uh, which usually had audiences of you know, around a 1,000 people. And we had some marvellous... Uh, opportunities in those two decades, I think, to form next generation activists in the charitable sector, the voluntary sector, in public life, in various ways. In other words, to, to, I, I, would, I would like to encourage always the next generation to find an enthusiasm for our civic life that I found when I was a teenager. Uh, but it doesn't happen by itself. I mean, you have to get out there and encourage it. You are Professor of Citizenship at John Moyle
0: University. What does that actually mean when we start talking about what you were teaching and so on?
1: Well, my starting point would be with Aristotle, who said that we are not solitary pieces in a game of checkers, that we are all part of the game. And he said Adolf shame would attach to the man who refused to play their part. So mine is a, a passion for civic engagement, for genuine participation in institutions. Uh, our institutions, our political parties, are only as good as the people who get involved in them. Um, so across 800 schools in the northwest of England, uh, we set up a good citizenship award scheme. Within the university, which has 25,000 students and uh, around three or 4,000 members of, of staff working in different places, again, a, a good citizenship uh, award scheme you could measure the input of that university into the local life of the city, not just in economic terms, which is very significant, but also in terms of what it's doing to enrich the civic life of that community. So um, it's not rocket science, but this was about encouraging participation and encouraging peaceful dialogue as well, respectful dialogue between people of contrary positions. So at our public lectures, We'd have people from many different walks of life and different political and religious um, social backgrounds. And people would come and listen respectfully to what they had to say, but then they would interrogate them uh, through QA at the end of it. And I thought this added something to the life of the city as well, especially given that in the 1990s, Liverpool had been rather disfigured by an extreme form of militancy, the uh, militant tendency had used for city as a sort of battering ram against central government with pretty disastrous consequences and we've gone through i think a very difficult period which is why the creation of the foundation for citizenship uh was a, a timely moment and i think it's helped to uh create a, a different kind of politics in the city and if you visit liverpool these days i mean it's a city that is doing incredibly well the world heritage site the waterfront the local economy um, the city feels good
0: now, you created the Roscoe Lectures. Were they just an extension of the uh, citizenship programme? They were part of it.
1: Uh, the, they were named, for, I named them for William Roscoe. Uh, he was a hero of mine. He was briefly a member of the House of Commons in 1807. He collaborated with Wil- William Wilberforce, uh, with uh, John Newton, with, with all of those in the anti-slavery movement. Um, and he voted against slavery even though he knew that this would uh, carry terrible consequences politically for him in a city that was mired in the slave trade. So when he returned to the city having voted against against the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, He was never returned to the House of Commons again. But he then did a lot of things on the ground. Uh, He he created Liverpool's Botanic Garden, he created the Athenaeum Club, uh, he created uh, educational institutions, including uh, a college for apprentices and, uh, and, and young engineers. And that is what has morphed, has grown into Liverpool John Moores University today. So, it seemed an obvious thing to me to name uh, our Roscoe lectures after him, um, because he, he he redeems the city's reputation during a period when it when it was a, a dark chapter in it, in its life. Um, and so the the lectures uh, have included everyone from Prince Charles and the Dalai Lama on on, on one side to um champions of industry uh, editors of newspapers uh, broadcasters um people from uh, educational walks of life scientists even an american astronaut so they, they are about giving people an insight into people's lives into what they do how they've helped, how they have helped to bring about change If you want to change the world, you have to change your country. If you want to change your country, then you have to change your cities. If you want to change your cities and communities, you have to change your families. And if you want to change your families, you have to change yourself. So there's a direct link between all of those things. And that doesn't happen by itself. It happens as a result of education in the widest sense Uh, and just because someone has left school or didn't go to university doesn't mean to say they don't have an appetite for learning and it's been fantastic to see how these live lectures not things coming to them through the internet or via the box in the corner of their living room but live lectures have been so successful people told me there would be no appetite for public lectures and they were wrong
0: David you've been an academic you've been a politician but you've also been an activist you in relation to human rights, and that 's been the other major focus of your life hasn 't it? Why was that? What made you click that? Is that all part of the Catholic faith working out? Is that all about an extension of citizenship to those who are being denied the rights and 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 respect uh, that citizens are entitled to
1: in nineteen thirty six uh, G k. Chesterton died, and it was in that year that he pub published he had just published his autobiography and i was rereading it uh, recently and at the end of it he said that he he had come to understand that human rights don't happen if you neglect human dignity and why would you care about human dignity surely it is because every single man and woman regardless of their color their creed their orientation their their gender, uh, their social background, they are uniquely made in God's image, every single person, and uh, therefore it's their dignity that you have to uphold, and you do that by campaigning surely for things like their human rights. Uh, but it's that belief in Imago Dei that you are unique and made in the image of God, which for me has been the driver in, in this respect, and it, begins at conception, it ends at natural death. So that's why I think it's an abuse of human rights to take the life of an unborn child. But I also think that if you stop at birth and merely campaign about the right to life of an unborn child, then you're not getting the, the picture. You, you have to continue that concern for life, uh, obviously beyond birth, and all the way through at every stage, and in faraway places as well. So, you know, when I was a, a youngster, one of the first things I did when I was 17, I, yes, I campaigned against the 1967 abortion act, but I I'd, was also campaigning, collecting petitions on the streets about things like the Russian tanks trundling into Czechoslovakia. Um, I b- took part in demonstrations about the Vietnam War. Uh, I joined the anti-apartheid movement um, because these things mattered to me and still do. I mean, The very first speech I made in my student union was against the South African uh, team that was about to visit, which was an apartheid-based team. Um, and uh, I won the, that, that motion in, in the student union. As housing chairman, um, yes, I cared about the bread and butter issues of people I represented, but I also introduced... Um, a motion before the council which was carried to provide emergency accommodation for Vietnamese boat people because I was watching what was happening to these poor souls in the Far East and, and felt we needed to do something about it.
0: We'll take the break there David and come back and pursue this further after the advertisements. Welcome back to this conversation with Lord Dalton of Liverpool. David, we've been talking about human rights now, you haven't just talked about it, you've been to North Korea and explored just how they infringe human rights there. That must have been a pretty dangerous
1: thing to do. Well, I don't want to over-exaggerate the dangers involved, Martin, but I, I became interested in, in, in religious freedom, uh, but also general political rights, freedom of expression, right back at school and carried on that interest as a student. But then subsequently when I came to the House of Commons there was an opportunity then to do something about these things and with Danny Smith uh, who founded Jubilee Campaign who became a lifelong friend uh, in Parliament we founded together the Jubilee Campaign in Parliament taking its name of course Jubilee from the biblical year of Jubilee a time when fields would be left fallow to regain their goodness, a time when unfair burdens of debt would be removed, but also a time when prisoners who had been unjustly held would be freed. And in particular, we campaigned at that moment for seven Siberian Christians, seven Pentecostals, who were holed up in the uh, American embassy in Moscow. And they were there for several years, because if they'd come out of the embassy, they were going to be sent to Siberia, and they had to stay in the basement um, and no one knew what to do about them so we campaigned about that and in the end i'm glad to say that they were freed but as a consequence of the campaign i then got a lot more letters from people saying well what about this one and that one and so on so with the keston institute which the reverend canon michael bordeaux did wonderful work in those days monitoring the situation in the former soviet union they provided us with information and we ran campaigns more than 100 mps agreed to take up and sponsor individual cases. And the then four political leaders, David Owen, David Steele, Neil Kinnock and Margaret Thatcher, all agreed to be patrons of the Jubilee campaign in Parliament. So it gave it political muscle as well. But it opened my eyes, I started travelling, and with a friend, Bill Hampson, who's worked with me on these things over the years. He comes from an independent Methodist background. Bill and I traveled to the Ukraine. We got arrested going into the Ukraine. Uh, They released us in the end. Uh, And we met with a bishop who'd spent 17 years in prison. We met with the chairman of the Committee for the Defense of the Catholic Church in Ukraine. He'd spent 18 years in prison. And we started taking up those cases and others like them. And it was very hard for me meeting people like that, or a young priest who just returned from Chernobyl, where he'd been sent without any protective clothing as a punishment for being caught celebrating the liturgies in the open. It was pretty difficult for me coming back to a country like this where we have so many privileges, we have so many freedoms and liberties and opportunities, not to do something about it. So, of course, I started telling the stories uh, in the House because that's something I was able to do. I was able to put pressure on government about this case or that case. And it took me to other parts of the world as a consequence. Uh, but I also, when I went to the Lords, teamed up with my, my very good friend, uh, Baroness Cox, Caroline Cox. And it was her fault, really, that I became interested in North Korea because she was due to meet a North Korean Christian who'd escaped and she was out of the country. So her office asked me would I see this gentleman in in her place and I said but I don't know anything about North Korea and the the lad in her office said well no one knows much about North Korea so that's all right and I laughed and I said okay I'll see him. Well I was very moved, he told me how his wife and two children had died during the famine in the 1990s, he tried to get out of the country with his one remaining son, he died en route out, he lost everybody but he'd been going in and out helping others to escape and again I thought if a Faith is worth dying for, or risking your life for, as he is doing. Surely for people like me who've got it so easy, it's worth living for. We should be doing a bit more uh, on behalf of people who have no voice. And I raised that case. I had a debate in the House. Uh, I got a complaint from the North Korean Embassy in London about the debate. I invited the Ambassador to come in, uh, and I invited Lady Cox to join me as well. I said it was <laughs> her fault <laughs> that this had happened in the first place, and she laughed. and. Anyway, we sat and I said to the ambassador, well, you don't allow anybody into your country anyway, so how could I verify what I've been told, whether it's true or not? Uh, And he said, would you go? And I thought, yes, but would I come back? (laughs) Um, And that was it. But that was the most, (laughs) if there were any dangers, that was the most dangerous moment, I suppose, in deciding whether to go or not, um, because I thought it could be open to misrepresentation and misinterpretation. But... Caroline and I paid our own way. We insisted that we'd have to have the right to raise cases when we went there, that our own ambassador in Pyongyang would monitor it, that if they tried to use us as, for propaganda purposes, then we would disassociate ourselves from it. And we told them all this in advance, that there would be no point. Uh, and as a result of that visit, we founded, Caroline and I founded the All Party Group on North Korea, which I continue to chair with now Fiona Bruce MP uh, f- and have done for, what, nearly 12 years. And I've written a little book about it, um, not least about the plight of Christians in North Korea. I mean there are between two and three hundred thousand people in the concentration camps, in the gulags in North Korea, even as we meet today and I've given a platform in Parliament to people like He Woo, an extraordinary woman who'd escaped from North Korea, and she gave her testimony uh, in the House. You couldn't listen to her story and not feel that you've got to do something about it. Uh, Open doors had brought her here i'll chair in a few days' time, the launch of this year's persecuted but forgotten report by aid to the church in need. I serve on, on their board in a pro bono capacity. But uh, it, seeing the kind of things that they do, with beleaguered Christian communities, especially in places like Iraq and Syria at the moment. Again, how could you sit, sit there and say, well, I'm not, not going to do anything about this? Of course you, you're going to try and do something. So Uh, During this month of November we're bringing the Syrian Orthodox Patriarch from Damascus to come and tell us about the plight of Christians in Syria at this time. On November the 23rd I've helped to organise the lighting up of the front of Westminster Cathedral and simultaneously Westminster Abbey in floodlit in red. We're encouraging young people to wear some red that day on November the 23rd or to light up their Facebook page or whatever. As a sign of solidarity, Red Wednesday, a day on which we can remember during this month of remembrance not just those who gave their lives for our freedoms and our nation, but also those who are dying in large numbers all around the world for their Christian faith. Uh, And I don't think we have taken this issue sufficiently seriously in the past. So Yes, it's about human rights, but it's about a lot more than that too. But you've also been to Burma
0: campaigning for the persecuted Muslims there.
1: Well, only yesterday I was given a a reply in Parliament about the Rohingya Muslims uh, whose case I've been regularly raising and our government minister, a Minister of State from the House of Lords uh, Baroness Annerley of St John Joyce Annerley, a very good woman, she's just been in Burma um, last week and so my question was well timed, she'd raised the issue while she was there with the authorities in Burma. Um, for me religious freedom is, is connected again to to the human rights issue. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights uh, was formed in 1948, think about the date, it was at the end of the Second World War, it was at the end of the Holocaust, it was a determination by world leaders that we should set out a charter, a universal Magna Carta of human rights. Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the key people involved in this. Article 18 of that Universal Declaration, which consists of 30 articles, says every person will have the right to believe, not to believe, or to change their belief to believe, not to believe, or to change their belief. That is, whether it's Rafe Badawi, a young atheist, being regularly beaten in Saudi Arabia because of his atheism, or a boy called Alexander Ahn, who was jailed in Indonesia for putting on his Facebook site that he didn't believe in God, sent to prison for four years, or if it's a North Korean Christian incarcerated because they refused to renounce their faith in in Jesus Christ, or whether it's a, a... a Buddhist uh, who who is being terrorised in Tibet or Falun Gong practitioners who it's alleged are even having organs removed by the state authorities in China whether it's Protestant Christians in China who are seeing their churches being demolished as they have been uh, because they haven't been given state authorization, whether it's Baha'is who are executed in Iran whether it's Ahmadi Muslims uh, in Pakistan, who, five million of whom are denied their voting rights. It all amounts to the same thing, Martin. These are people whose Article 18 rights are being not just ignored, they're being violated, and these are egregious violations of human rights. You think about Asia Bibi, the young Catholic mother who is on death row, sentenced to death, on s- trumped up blasphemy charges in Pakistan or that extraordinary Minister for Minorities who said he knew he was signing his own death warrant by taking up that post, Shabazz Bharti, murdered in cold blood uh, in Pakistan, uh, and still no one brought to justice for those, for those wicked events. All of these things should impel us to do more, to say more, to use the opportunities that we have, and to speak on behalf of people who have no voice and whose rights are trampled on.
0: How does your wife Lizzie feel about you going in to see some of these pretty scary places, pursuing these campaigns, where threats against you must be real?
1: I'm very fortunate. I think the best five pounds I ever spent was on the marriage license when when Lizzie and I got married. Um, she, uh, she, she, Lizzie herself comes, remember, from quite an interesting background. Her father. Uh, was a Church of England clergyman, 60 years an Anglican priest, his father 50 years an Anglican priest, but he took his four children to Tristan de Kuna where he was the priest in charge on a tiny island thousands of miles from, from anywhere. Her sister was a, a missionary whose children were born in northern Nigeria. Um, so. She, her family knows about dangers. She was an officer in, in, in the Royal Navy, in the Wrens, um, so she's seen tough and difficult situations herself. We discussed the things that I need to do, and... When, when we first met of course it was when I was doing my private members bill on abortion and I don't think there were many newlyweds who would have pickets outside their own home but we had pickets uh, outside our, our home in, in Liverpool objecting to what I was trying to do I had you know my constituency offices were burned out during that period um, I had demonstrators crawling all over my car uh, my surgeries picketed when I was running advice centres and so on. So she saw all of that. In many ways, it's <laughs> maybe it's quieter when I go to places like North Korea <laughs> than it was when, uh, when taking up those those things. But yeah, there have been moments when when it's felt a bit uh, a little bit risky. But, but I don't. I, I when I look at someone like Caroline Cox, uh, she does things that are truly extraordinary, and you know I, I so admire the way she goes selflessly into situations. She's in Nigeria at this very moment, uh, visiting areas where Boko Haram are in operation. She regularly goes into places like the Nuba Mountains in the Republic of Sudan, where there's aerial bombardment on a day-by-day basis by Khartoum. So, you know, Caroline uh, I I think is the real risk taker, not not me. There's a
0: curiosity about you. You're an honorary professor at Yambian University in China. but have a publicly critical record of the Chinese government's human rights. How on earth do you get away with it?
1: I'd rather you didn't go too far into that question, Martin, for, for that very reason. I'd, I don't entirely know why the, the Chinese were so receptive to my being invited to be a, an honorary professor at Yanbian. It's a totally unpaid role, I might add, but I, but I was felt very privileged to be allowed to do that. It's in the Korean-speaking area of China, in Jilin Province. And the man who founded it uh, is an extraordinary man himself, uh, called James Kim. He's a a Christian uh, who fought in the Korean War and made a pledge with God that if he survived the war he would do something for Peace and reconciliation in the future. So he not only founded Yanbian, but he founded Pyongyang University of Science and Technology as well, where I've also spoken. And James is, 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 you know, he's a remarkable man. He was even sentenced to death by the North Koreans at one stage. Um, in the end, they allowed him to come and build the university with, with the approval of the state. Um, so I, I think it's how you go about what you have to say. Um, with the Chinese, I've always been clear with them. They were angry with me when I invited the Dalai Lama to come to my university in Liverpool Um, and we gave him an honorary fellowship and all sorts of threats were made uh, about whether Chinese students would come to the university in the future, whether the twinning between the city and, and Shanghai would be cut. Those things didn't come to pass but what did happen was I was invited into the Chinese embassy to explain why I felt so strongly about giving the Dalai Lama a platform and as a result of that conversation that we had I was able to take three parliamentary colleagues with me to Tibet to go and see the situation firsthand. So you can disagree with people without having to insult them. I think the worst thing that this country could do is to kowtow, to use a a phrase that will be very well known to the Chinese. I don't think they respect us for trying to ingratiate ourselves with them, usually because for financial reasons. We do it with the Saudis as well. I mean, Saudi Arabia, since the current conflict in Yemen began, Saudi Arabia uh, has bought £3.3 billion worth of armaments from this country, so we accept all sorts of things that Saudi does, including the bombing of a, of a Shia Muslim funeral recently, where over 120 people died in that bombing raid. And we know that the Americans and ourselves provided the armaments that are used in the conflict in Yemen. But we allow that to happen. We we kowtow to regimes, usually for financial reasons. Now, I, I think we've got to think in other terms than that. There's nothing wrong in providing uh, tools for the defence of a democratic nation, but there's a lot that's wrong in providing tools for oppressive nations. And I think we've got to rethink quite where we stand on these questions, Uh, otherwise we reduce ourselves in in the eyes of the rest of the world. The things that I admire about this country and that people admire outside are things like the BBC World Service, things like the Commonwealth, Things like the British Council, now, we do those things really well. The English language, which is perhaps our best export of all. Um, and We should you know, do what we're good at and, and sometimes evaluate the things that might be give us some short-term financial gain but don't stand us in good stead in the long term.
0: But you've been campaigning vigorously for the government uh, to refer the activities of Daesh and the asset government. Uh, in Syria to the United Nations Security Council as genocide. Why haven't they done that? The evidence seems so obvious.
1: The evidence, Martin, is overwhelming and that is why the British House of Commons, the American House of Representatives, the Australian House of Representatives, the European Parliament, the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe have all passed resolutions saying that what is happening to Christians, Yazidis and other minorities uh, is genocide in other words under the terms of the genocide convention this isn't just a rhetorical flourish this is under the terms of that convention technically what is happening is a genocide just like what happened to the armenians in 1915 was a genocide and this in many ways is a continuation of those events, I call it a slow burn genocide. It's been going on systematically and the world looks away. Why do they look away? Because of geopolitics, because we don't want to upset the Turks or we don't want to upset the Russians or we don't want to upset the Syrians. Well, I'm sorry, if you're a signatory to the convention on the prevention of genocide, you have a duty to prevent, you have a duty to protect and you have a duty to punish. What is the point of setting up the International Criminal Court if you then don't refer people to that court to be prosecuted for the things that they have done. In the case of the Assad regime, there are clearly crimes against humanity. In the case of ISIS, there is clearly genocide, and they should be held to account for those things. Instead of which, all we do is put all our faith in aerial bombardment. Now, there are times for military action, but surely if we've learned nothing as a result of Iraq, as a result of Libya, it's that we shouldn't go on doing the same failed things all over again. Einstein's definition of insanity was to do the same thing over and over again, and that seems to me not a bad definition of the way we've conducted our foreign policy in Syria. Uh, It's a disaster for the people of Aleppo. I chaired a meeting in Parliament a few weeks ago for the Archbishop of Aleppo who came here. It was heartbreaking to hear the stories of what is happening to everybody in that community. Everybody is suffering in Syria, everybody is suffering. So let's be clear about that. But genocide is a specific term about a spe- of a, where your, a campaign is waged specifically because of people's religious or ethnic backgrounds. And clearly groups like the Christian Chaldeans, the Christian Assyrians or the Yazidis fall into those categories. And I think it's shameful that our own Foreign Office and our own government have not done what Parliament, the House of Commons, directed them to do and to name things for what they are and then to set in motion all the things that should flow from that.
0: But their reason for doing that, I understand, is that they know that if they tabled uh, a motion on the Security Council the Russians would continue to veto it. Is this actually destroying the United Nations itself?
1: Well, if you can't even take a resolution to the Security Council on the basis that somebody else might veto it. Then uh, it was Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, not to act is to act, not to speak is to speak. So you, you have collaborated then with the Russians, if that is so. As it happens, I wrote to the Russian ambassador in London directly and said, would it be your intention uh, to block any legal route to bring holding people to account? for their actions, and in in writing he said, no, it would not be their intention to do that. Well, I think that should be tested in the Security Council, and the worst that could happen is that the Russians do veto it, and then you expose the hand of Putin then for such a hand. If that is clearly what what he he wants to do, let him do it. But my guess is that we might be pleasantly surprised. Uh, My guess is that if it was couched in the right terms and targeted in the right way, and if you started just with ISIS, that you might well get a majority. And once you've established the principle that people must be held to account, that there will be a Nuremberg moment where people will be held to account for their actions, then you're on the right track. You're saying the rule of law matters more than anything else here. And at the moment, the rule of law counts for nothing in, in the Middle East. Uh, so for me, this isn't about you know, trying to impose Westminster models of democracy or whatever. All these countries are signatories to the 1948 Convention on Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They're all signatories to the Convention on the Prevention of Genocide. Well, what's the point of them signing such things if we don't then hold them to account and say, is this just a meaningless piece of paper? So Britain, there's not much point in Britain being a member of the Security Council if it doesn't use its seat to champion people in this dreadful situation that they find themselves. David. You're one of life's
0: campaigners. Are you ever frustrated that British people are not actually caring enough about some of these issues that you've campaigned on?
1: Sometimes I get disappointed, obviously, but also I I can be very encouraged as well that uh, when I did my private members bill, for instance, over a million cards and letters arrived at Westminster supporting my bill to try and reduce the numbers of abortions in Britain, the late abortions. Um, When we finally got to the vote on on that, by the way, a majority voted for my, my bill. It was talked out by opponents in the end, but it never lost a vote at any stage. 296 MPs voted for it because People were on the ground, not just the churches, but people all over the country became interested enough to do something about it. And I think that what we're seeing at the moment, whether it's in America or on on the vote here on the European Union, we're seeing people angry with the political classes. They're fed up with being taken for granted, no one listening to what they have to say. We've got to re-engage people properly. So you know, if the centre doesn't hold, Uh, and famous lines of Yeats from one of his great poems at the end of the First World War there is a disaster when the centre doesn't hold, and the centre isn't holding in, in Britain at the moment. We've given we've given the, the the opportunity to people who are on on the extremes of politics because the centre has not been engaging directly, and the political elites and political classes living in a sort of bubble at Westminster need to re-energize themselves and get back out and campaign. No, it's it's not easy, and often you'll be defeated, but you come back and you come back and. Sometimes you can be pleasantly surprised and win people over. It wasn't that all my constituents necessarily agreed with everything I ever said or did. But in the end, I think that they saw that I was committed to them, committed to my country as well and to the causes that I cared about. And they gave me license to do that. And I I think that more politicians, rather than being just purely creatures of of their political parties or looking for careers in politics if they embraced more causes and did get out and campaign in in, in a grassroots way. People like Joe Cox, for instance, we need more politicians of that calibre and of that kind and I think very quickly we would reclaim our democracy.
0: David, finally, you've packed so much into your 65 years. You're a politician, an academic, a human rights activist, you've written 12 books. How do you relax?
1: <laughs> well, I have a garden, which I love. Um, you know, the Bible opened in a garden and it ended in a, in a garden. And I, I, one of the nicest things uh, when my children were growing up was when I collected my youngest son from nursery one day. And uh, the teacher had been asking the youngsters in the class, what did their dads do? And each of the children was say, saying what their, their father did for a, a living. And my son very proudly said, "My dad's a gardener," <laughs> because that's how he spent his weekends with me in the garden. And I, I, I like that story because I think it illustrates that there is another side of me other than just the politics. Um, in the end, the only thing that a man leaves behind, I think of real worth are his family and his friends and the things that he's tried to do in his life. And you know, I, I look at my, my children and they're, now now one grandchild born and another one on the way and I I think well these are actually the legacy for me more than all the other things I just do what I'm been fortunate that I've been in a position where I've had an opportunity to speak to act to try and raise questions I care about and I I thank God for all those blessings but the biggest of all those blessings are my family.
0: How do you How does your Christian faith energise you and help you to keep going and not despair when you see so much evil in the world?
1: Well, when you think about the cross itself, if that was the end of the story, then you would be pretty depressed. But of course, we know it isn't the end of the story. J.R.R. Tolkien, a great friend of C.S. Lewis, of course, and they were Inklings together, Tolkien said that for him as a Catholic, he said he, knew, he regarded history as one long defeat. But he said, at the end, there are always glimpses of the final victory. And I guess that's what keeps me going as well is, is the knowledge that however dreadful and bad things may be here, however much of a mess we make of things, if, if you know that there will be a time of judgment, but also that there will be a, the ultimate healing through salvation, and that there will be an eternal life beyond our graves, then surely that puts all of this into the right kind of perspective and context.
0: David Alton, Lord Alton of Liverpool, thank you very much for sharing your life with us this afternoon.
1: Thank you, Martin. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio.